Thanks for that reading, Pete. Uh, let me add my welcome to Ken's. If you're new or visiting, my name's Rod. I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. And as you've heard, we're working through uh, this section of Luke's Gospel from chapters 10 to 12. Uh, so let me pray for us before we come to this. Um, it's a section of Scripture which is hard-hitting, as Ken mentioned in the intro. And I think the danger is, as we come to it, um, that we put ourselves in Jesus' seat, as it were, and look down on the mistakes of those that he's speaking to, rather than placing ourselves in the seat, actually, of the Pharisees and teachers of the law and hearing the warnings that Jesus is bringing to them. So let me pray for us that we might respond well. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather here tonight. Uh, we thank you for the freedom to do so. We thank you for your word given to us, that you are a speaking God who has revealed yourself to us through your word and ultimately in the person of your son, the Lord Jesus. And we do pray tonight that you might help us to hear clearly these warnings from Christ. Help us to be ready to change. We ask that your spirit might be at work in us to convict us and challenge us where needed and that you'll encourage us to. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, a meal with Queen Elizabeth is something that many of her subjects don't get to enjoy. But even for those lucky enough to get an invitation, it's one of those invitations where you're a bit nervous because there's fraught with pitfalls in terms of the social protocol. Such was the case for Formula One ace uh, Lewis Hamilton, who was invited there a few years ago for lunch. Uh, no sooner had they started pouring the mineral water than he was being chided by the Queen for his bad table manners. You see, he was interviewed on BBC a couple of years ago asking about his experience, and he said, well, I was really excited to meet the Queen and to get in conversation, and I couldn't believe it, I was sat next to her on her left. And so I just started chatting as soon as we sat down, and she immediately turned to me and said, no, you speak to the person on your left. I'll be speaking to the person on my right during the first course, and I'll turn to you in the second. You see, that's how it works, because the guest of honour at one of these lunches sits at the right hand of the Queen, and they get the first conversation. Later, the person on the left gets to hear from her. And so he got it all wrong, you see. But he's not the only one. Uh, Michelle Obama, um, former First Lady, uh, made the great error back in 2009 on their state visit to Britain of actually hugging the Queen on a photo shoot. See, there's a no-touching rule, and she's one of five people at least that have made this error over the years, including our former Prime Minister, Paul Keating. So we're up there as well in making mistakes. And look, if you ever do get invited to a lunch, um, just be aware there's a, there's a no-selfie rule as well, so don't do that. Well, in our passage that we're considering this evening, Jesus is invited to a meal, and it's a meal with an important person, a Pharisee who would have been seen as one of the upstanding citizens of the town, one of the leaders of the place he was in. But Jesus, as he comes to this meal, ignores all the social protocols as well. See, for the second time in Luke's gospel, he's invited to a Pharisee's house. It happened back in Luke chapter 7. And you may remember that incident that we considered last year when we were working through the gospel, where he goes into the Pharisee's home and a sinful woman well known in the town comes in and starts crying behind him, wetting his feet with her tears and then wipes his feet with her hair, breaks open a really expensive bottle of perfume and anoints his feet as well. And you can imagine the stir that followed inside the Pharisee's house. Well, there's no lesser stir this time, but it's not because of anybody else coming in, but it's because of what Jesus does or fails to do and also because of what he says. 
And the issue at stake here in this passage is religious purity. Religious purity. And the question is, what is God seeking? And how might people fall into hypocrisy, actually doing things that God is not looking for? And they're just keeping up appearances. You see, Jesus has some very strong words to say to the religious leaders in this setting at this meal. And the big question that I want us to consider tonight is this. What is it that Jesus condemns? What does Jesus condemn as he speaks to these people gathered? Well, there's six things that we're going to run through. There's a number of things he has to say. The first of those six that Jesus addresses, the first answer to this question of what he condemns is a focus on the external rather than the internal. A focus on the external rather than on the internal. So notice again, verses 37 to 41. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Well, there's a good start to the dinner party, isn't it? You're straight in, and I'm sure they were on the back foot quickly there. But verse 37 makes it clear that this is on the back of what we considered last week. Remember, Jesus had been speaking to a crowd of people, and he finished in that section, verses 33 to 36, speaking about the light of Scripture and of Jesus being present, but the lack of sight of the people listening, that they could not see Jesus for who he was. And as we start into this section here, we see that the religious leaders become an example, if you like, of those who have the light of scriptures, indeed see themselves as experts in it, leaders for the people, and yet are blind to the truth of God's word and are failing to live by it. Well, let's back up for a moment because we need to understand a little bit of the background here. Who are these Pharisees that are being spoken of? Well, the Pharisees uh, were a group, uh, a religious sect, if you like, within um, Israel, which had started a couple of centuries before Jesus' time, 2nd century BC. Some commentators argue that there was about 6,000 of them at the time of Jesus. They were like this very strong lay movement of very committed Jews who were wanting to fulfill the law, do everything that was said in the first five books of the Bible, but who had also added many other oral traditions and laws and customs of the day that they wanted to add on. Now, in their view, those things were good things. They were a hedge around the law to help people to fulfill the law. Let's give them more rules so they don't even get up to the edge, as it were, of making a mistake. And so they were a strict group. And from our vantage point these days, of course, we view them as the bad guys. They're the ones wearing the black hats. Nobody wants to be called a Pharisee. But we have to realize that in first century Judaism, they were the leading citizens. They were the most important people in town. They were the good Jews who were doing everything rightly. And the other group present, which we don't learn about until verse 45, is the teachers of the law or the scribes. Um, in Luke's gospel, he tends to refer to those groups interchangeably. But the scribes were those that would copy down the law and the other 
traditions. And the teachers of the law or the lawyers were the experts in defining what you needed to do and interpreting that law. This is what it means to live it out day by day. So if you like, the interpreters, the copies of the law, they were defining the obligations of the average Jew and the Pharisees were often the ones policing them. They were dedicated to keeping all the regulations, both the written form and especially their own oral forms, which they kept adding to. And so it's interesting that a Pharisee would even invite Jesus to his house. Perhaps it signifies an openness to Jesus, that they are willing to hear from him. They want to see what he has to say. We're not really told the motivation in this text, but perhaps it's simply to test him because that's been a trend already to this point in Luke's gospel. And of course, Jesus fails at the first hurdle that was. Uh, hand washing was a very important custom within the Jewish society at the time. It wasn't something required by Old Testament law. It was part of these additional oral traditions and customs. But basically, every Jew would do it. If you went into a household, then you had these ceremonial bowls at the door. Everyone would wash their hands. It wasn't about having clean hands because you'd been dirty and playing outside, but because it was a ceremonial statement of your cleanliness, your purity before God as a good Jew as you came in to gather with others. Because Jesus just doesn't do it. And of course, the Pharisee who's hosting is surprised. Um, that's perhaps an understatement. He's perhaps shocked. And I think we might say, as we see what follows, that Jesus is being provocative. That this is a choice. He you know, deliberately does this. Because it's not just a failure at social etiquette. It was kind of a boundary marker for the Jewish community. If you didn't do this, then you're seen as an unclean person outside of the right community. Jesus would be viewed as unclean. And what he's doing is setting up a clash here of perspectives on religious purity. This is what the Pharisees stand for, but Jesus clearly stands for something else. And he's going to unfold that. And the reason you can see that Jesus has made a deliberate step in this is that he simply goes straight into it, doesn't he, in the heart of the matter, in verses 39 to 41, the first thing that's said that's recorded for us anyway at the meal. And what he does is provide this general principle that governs the rest of the passage, how we're supposed to think about this issue of religious purity and indeed the hypocrisy that can come with it. Simply put, purity involves what's in our hearts not just our outward actions. Purity involves what's in our hearts, not just our outward actions. And Jesus tells them, doesn't he, that they're focusing on the external, but inside they're full of greed and wickedness. Jesus denounces them because he says, well, God made the outside and the inside of a person. He cares about both. Indeed, the heart is very important. And so in verse 41, Christ is actually calling them to repentance. He's not simply denouncing them, but he's calling them to change. You notice there he addresses the issue of greed. He picks on this one issue. I think it's a bit like the rich young ruler. Remember that story where the young man comes to Jesus and says, what must I do? And he says, give away everything you have and come and follow me. And it's because it's his Achilles heel, it's the one thing that he's unwilling to give up. And it seems here the big issue for the Pharisees that Jesus is addressing is their greed. And so he picks on that and says, well, be generous then things will be clean with you. 
and it was seen in a social context in terms of care of the poor people. Often the Pharisees and the experts in the law were at the top of the food chain in society. They were well-to-do, but there were many around them that were poor that they weren't lifting a finger to be concerned about. I think often when we think about caring for the poor today, we think about giving money to a charity, and so, you know, I'll send off the check or I'll do the transfer, and so I've cared for the poor. But in the first century context, it was not like that. It wasn't detached. What it meant was you invited them into your home. This was radical hospitality and care. Those who were poor were included as if they were your brother or sister. Jesus is saying, well, the Pharisees don't live this way. They're greedy. They look after themselves. They don't care for those around them. Now, as we apply this first point to ourselves, I think it's clear that we've got to be very careful as we think about our own, perhaps, outward righteousness or forms of legalism that we might fall into. I imagine you don't have a ceremonial bowl at the door of your house that no one can enter the door unless they wash their hands in, but you will have other markers. We, we do, even as believers, don't we, of whether we think somebody is a righteous person. And of course, they're external things. They don't really get to the heart. And so we might say, oh, well, that person attends church regularly, or... You know, they have the right words, they, they speak well, or they seem to be dressed in a conservative way, or whatever it might be. We have some marker that makes us think that they're okay. We give respect to these outward signs at times when we know, or should do, that they're no indication of a person's heart. But God knows a person's heart as much as we can't see that. Genuine followers of Jesus will be concerned with their inward spiritual health. They'll know that no external show will ever be a replacement for a living relationship with the God of the universe. You know, when Howard Carter and his associates found um, the tomb of Tutankhamun so many years ago now in Egypt, they found a coffin and they opened that coffin and inside it was another coffin. And then they opened that coffin and inside it was another coffin covered in gold leaf. And then they opened that coffin and inside was a fourth coffin which was pure gold. And then they opened that coffin and inside was the body that was shrouded in golden material and had the famous face mask made out of gold. And only when they'd removed all of that did they get to the body underneath which of course was leathery and shriveled. You see, whether we're trying to cloak a dead spiritual life with caskets of gold to impress others, the beauty of the exterior, or the choices that we outwardly seem to make, if there's not inward life, then that changes nothing. We can fool those around us, but we can't fool the living God. And so that's the first thing that Jesus wants to condemn. And there's a second one now. A second answer to the question of what Jesus condemns. Majoring on the minors. Majoring on the minors. Have a look again at verse 42 as we move along in the passage. Woe to you Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint and rue and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. See, in this next example, Jesus notes that although the Pharisees are so committed to tithing that they measure out even a tenth of their herbs, they're neglecting the big issues. 
You see, not only would a, a Jew who is really committed tithe, say, their income, their money, as we might think about in an offering today, but they would do it with their food and any other things they received. And so they wouldn't eat from that tent. They would give it to God so that what they were eating was pure or clean again. It was that which was only for them, and that which was reserved for God was already given. And so they would go down to the minute details of even counting out, as it were, a tenth of their herbs, mint and rue that's pictured on the screen. And yet, Jesus says, well, they don't actually love God. They neglect justice. See, so many times um, in the New Testament, and Jesus himself says this, all of the laws of the Old Testament covenant, all 613 of them can be summarized down to two. That the heart of the law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is saying right here that they do neither. They don't love God, he says, outright, and they neglect justice, which goes to the horizontal of actually loving other people. And so here are these people that are the religious leaders of the nation. And he says, you don't even love God or love other people, but you're very good at counting out a tenth of your herbs. There's something wrong at that point. Now, as we apply this to ourselves, we need to realise that we can potentially fall into that sort of empty religiosity. You know, maybe we can be really strict ourselves on the issue of tithing. You know, somebody could be very resolute in, in giving money every week, every month, whatever they do, and then never being concerned for their needs of their neighbour who is struggling or is being treated poorly. They show no justice, but they do things to impress on the outside other believers. Or maybe it's you know, something small like food. The Jews had lots of rules about food, so many food laws or traditions. I mean, lots of Christians for centuries have only eaten fish on a Friday. It's not in the Bible. It's a practice that has come down. People can be very religious about doing that. There's an example that they're a really good believer because uh, they're not eating any red meat on a Friday. But those kind of things can just be legalistic box ticking. They're not going to impress God if there's no love of God that motivates any of that. And that's Jesus' point as he speaks to these leaders, so-called leaders of the people. Which brings us to a third answer to this question of what Jesus condemns. Not only majoring on the minors, but also looking for the praise of people. Looking for the praise of people. Have a look again at verses 43 and 44 with me. Woe to you Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you're like unmarked graves, which people walk over without knowing it. Now, the most important seats in the synagogues were those up on the front, up on the stage that stood there looking back at the congregation that was there. Very important to be up the front and dressed in their finest clothes to get the respect of everyone at what was the central point of the religious life of the community, the synagogue. But it was not only there that they wanted the respect and the prominence, but also in the marketplace. Out in the town square, they wanted people to greet them in a way that acknowledged their importance. And so it would usually come with the title and people say, oh, Hi, Rabbi, teacher, good to see you. And we might say, well, what's the problem with that? Maybe people are just, you know, acknowledging their authority, their responsibility. 
over God's people? Is it a really a big deal? Well, Jesus infers here, doesn't it, that this all leads to pride. The inference is that this exalts people rather than producing humility. It's all about honouring themselves rather than honouring God. It's about status before others. But true greatness is not found in such worldly praise. Now, there's the story of two brothers who grew up on a farm and the eldest went away to the city eventually and became a top lawyer, um, blitzed his course and was a leading partner in a big law firm in the capital city of his state. And the younger brother stayed at home working on the farm, continuing the work of the family. One day the older brother came home and said to his younger brother, look, why don't you go off to the city and make a name for yourself? Be important so that you can hold your head up high just like me. And the younger brother said to him, see that wheat field out there? It's only the empty heads that have very little grain in them that stand up very tall. The ones that are full of grain bow down low. That's so true, isn't it? But we struggle with this. And Jesus states that in verse 44 that the result is the Pharisees were like unmarked graves. I mean, one of the worst things for a Jewish person was to touch a dead body or even a grave because that made you ceremonially unclean again. You were impure because you had touched or even walked over the top of it. And Jesus is saying that the religious leaders of the nation are like unmarked graves. It's like there's a hidden pollution inside them and anybody that has contact with them is being polluted, is being made impure just by coming into the presence of those who claim to lead them in the faith. There couldn't be much stronger indictment of these Pharisees and teachers of the law. Their corruption is hidden, but they pollute everyone they have contact with. Now, surely as we apply this to ourselves as believers today, that we're not to copy the world's model of self-importance and status. I mean, we think about it, if a person is a believer, trying to be having status or self-importance before the God who rules the universe is really laughable, isn't it? Who are we in front of him? Can we ever impress God? It's laughable even as we try to impress others. Indeed, whole comedy shows have been built around this idea of just trying to impress the neighbour next door. Maybe you remember the British comedy from a few years ago, Keeping Up Appearances. It was a classic of this kind of genre. The whole show was about how Hyacinth and her husband had to impress the others and looked very important and ahead of those around them. There's this classic line. It's mocking the idea the whole way through, though. And she says, If there's one thing I can't stand, it's snobbery and one-upmanship. People trying to pretend they're superior makes it so much harder for the rest of us who really are. I must answer my white slimline telephone with my last number redial. It's bound to be somebody important wanting to speak to me. And instead of wanting to be the centre of attention all the time, believers need to actually cultivate a humility it's actually only interested in God's praise, not looking for the praise of people. Now, there's um, a well-known writer, South African man, Andrew Murray, from the end of the 19th century. He was a minister and writer who wrote some great books on prayer and humility. And he has this wonderful quote about how believers should think about the issue of humility in daily life. He wrote this. Humility is a perfect quietness of heart. 
It's to expect no special treatment, to wonder at nothing that is ever done to me, to feel nothing that is done against me. It's to be at rest when nobody praises me and to be equally so when I'm blamed or despised. Well, there's humility. I think it's a good definition. But it goes against the grain, doesn't it, for our world. We can find this so hard. I think humility is a bit like a slippery watermelon seed. You know, you're trying to pick it up and you almost get it under your finger and then it slips away again. You can never quite get it. I think in order to grow in this area, we've got to keep prayerfully reminding ourselves of the gospel. We have to keep coming back to the fact that we are sinners, desperate sinners before a holy God. And that God has been so gracious, so merciful to us in the sending of his son. We have no standing except that which God gives us. We are of no importance except the importance that God places upon us. We're made in his image. We can be remade through the forgiveness of his son. But we need to see rightly who we are, that we may not be looking for the praise of people, simply his. That brings us to a fourth answer to the question. Fourth answer to the question of what Jesus condemns. Fourthly, he condemns placing burdens on others, placing burdens on other people. So notice again what's recorded in verse 46, as here he turns his attention to the experts in the law who mistakenly speak up in verse 45 and saying they're offended. So Jesus goes for them. Jesus replied, and you experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. You see, like the Pharisees, they had numerous complicated and strict oral laws that they were trying to fulfill. And the religious lawyers had this role of really increasing the burden on people. They kept pressing in on the Jewish consciousness that you had to do these things. If you didn't do them, you weren't right with God. But of course, Jesus is saying that they load these legalistic requirements on people that go beyond what God's word actually says, but they have very little compassion for them as they struggle to fulfill them. You see, the experts in the law were often kind of above the daily life of the average person. They may have been able to sit more in their ivory tower and not have to deal with all the regulations that they burdened others with. Those that had to go about daily life, such as dealing with a farm, had a hard time doing the things that were required of them, especially on a Sabbath. I mean, you were allowed to do so little on a Sabbath. You, know, you had to measure the number of steps you took because if you did too many steps, you were working. If your cow or something fell over and was in danger of death on the Sabbath, well, too bad. You had to leave it because to help it would be working on the Sabbath. And these kind of rules just weighed people down. We can't live under this and be doing the supposed right thing. Meanwhile, the experts in the law really didn't have to do it themselves and didn't lift a finger to help others. Look, as we apply this to ourselves today, we need to think about if you're somebody who has trusted in Jesus and your Lord and Saviour, do you play this game with other believers at times? You set standards for them and judge them by it. Place other burdens upon them that go beyond Scripture. You know, you wouldn't say perhaps that they're required for salvation, but if they're really to be a mature believer like you, well, they should be up at 5 a.m. and praying for two hours. I mean, if you're really a serious Christian, you'd be doing those things. Or, you know, you really should be witnessing and seeing one person come to salvation every week. If you're not, you're not really serious about sharing the faith that you believe in. 
or you really should be practically helping other people. If you're not out every week doing something that meets other people's needs, then are you really living out your faith? And on and on we can go with things that are all good things to do, but once we make them some standard or rule that we judge others by, they become a legalism that just weighs people down. Or maybe it's just simpler things in the day-to-day living, little rules you've made up for your family. You know, oh, you allow your children to go to bed after 7 p.m., do you? Oh, well, you don't quite you know, meet the standards that we have, but I guess. You know, oh, you, you watched that movie, did you, the other week? Oh, well, you know, personally, I only watch Christian movies because I don't want to be polluted by the world. But, you know, if you will go to such things, then... Now, of course, there's good reason. There's a lot that this world can pollute us, and who wouldn't like my child to go to bed at 7 p.m.? I'd love it. You know, there, there can be great instructions in these things. We can mean well. The experts in the law meant well. But if we press them in on people to make them feel guilty, to make them lesser than the standard that we're holding ourselves to, then we've become legalists. We've become Pharisees. And of course, if we do such things, then we become in danger of being hypocrites, where we say one thing, but we end up doing something else because we can't even meet our own rules. I tell you to do X, but I do Y. And of course, that can blow up in my face. I grew up on five acres of bushland on Sydney's George's River. And one of the things you learn in those areas pretty quickly is a healthy respect for snakes. Um, my mother had less of a healthy respect and more of fear. And so, you know, the great danger was that one of them might get into the house and you'd find it in the bedroom. So we had this seek and destroy mission always if we saw one. You know, you had to kill it so it didn't get away. And so we had this method. It was a simple, well-timed lunge with a spade to cut its head off. And then the matter was dealt with. But one day I had a friend of mine over from the next street and we were confronted with a red-bellied black snake that afternoon. And after a bit of concern and eventually dealing with the snake, um, he then gets hold of the snake by the tail and says, oh, you know, this is such a wimpy way that you're dealing with snakes, cutting its head off like this. Look, I've seen Harry Butler shows. This is like Steve Irwin from 30 years ago. Harry Butler in the wild, like he just grabs a snake by the tail and he just whips it and it just breaks its neck and it's dead like that. It's so easy. Let me show you how. And so off he went. Forgetting, of course, that we had cut off the head already. And so as he did his spectacular whip, he sort of covered himself with blood. And um, I guess it was a do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do moment that sort of backfired spectacularly. Well, that can happen to us too, can't it? Let's be careful we don't load our superior rules on other people when they go beyond God's word. And that brings us to a fifth question or answer, rather, of the question, what Jesus condemns. Fifth answer is this, celebrating God's word while ignoring it. Celebrating God's word while ignoring it. Sounds like an oxymoron, but let's have a look. Verses 47 to 49. Woe to you, says Jesus, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. So this section is all about persecuting God's servants, the prophets who came and spoke God's word. We're trying to bring the people back to following the law, being those that were actually obedient to what God had commanded. 
And of course, over the centuries, God had sent many prophets to the people of Israel. And often they were dealt with very harshly because people didn't want to hear the rebuke. And so if you don't like hearing a message that's making you uncomfortable, then just kill the messenger and then you won't be feeling so bad. And so they did that over and over. So there's a whole long list, isn't there, of prophets who were killed by God's people that they were trying to help. And Jesus says to these Pharisees and experts of the law that were making a big deal in their day of doing ornate tombs for previous prophets who had been killed by their own ancestors, oh, look, you know, see how we're honouring your word and we really believed those prophets. If we had been there in their day, we would not have killed them like our ancestors did. They say that in the parallel passage in Matthew. Jesus says, rubbish, you're just like your ancestors. You're just like them. You're actually proving that they were the ones that killed it by the way you act because you too have an evil nature. And you're going to be sent prophets and apostles in verse 49 and the same pattern is going to continue. You're going to attack them. You're going to kill some. You're going to persecute others. And of course the elephant in the room at this point is that Jesus is right before them the eternal son of God, and they're not interested, they're not listening to him. And at the very end of this episode, they're going to go out and plot how they can kill him. QED. And that brings us to the final and related answer to the question of what Jesus condemns. Lastly, turning others from the truth. Turning others from the truth. So notice again what is recorded in verse 52. Jesus states, Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. Now this final woe is a great summation of everything that is wrong with the system that Jesus is attacking in his religious leaders. I mean, he's saying that they have so missed God's word that they are not going to heaven that they don't understand how to enter the kingdom of God. They've missed it themselves and they're preventing other people from entering the kingdom of God by teaching God's word wrongly, by focusing on the external teaching legalisms but not allowing them to hear rightly how to be right with God, how to love God, how to be pure of heart. And so Jesus' stinging rebuke here of the Pharisees and the experts of the law is that they have the keys they, of all people, have the scripture that should point them to the truth, the key to knowledge, and yet they have not understood it, and it's as if they've closed the book to others understanding it. And so there's this double condemnation at the end. And as we apply these final points uh, to ourselves, it certainly applies to pastors and other leaders today. Sadly, there is... So much that can go wrong so that people are turned away from the gospel of grace. Uh, many of you perhaps may not have heard of John Smith. Uh, he was the founder of the God Squad motorcycle ministry throughout Australia. He's an evangelist and author, been speaking at lots of things since the 1970s in Australia. Well, he died on Wednesday night. Um, but he wrote of his concerns just recently in an article about his worries about the church in Australia today, particularly on the issue of the prosperity gospel. He said this, I witnessed a deeply disturbing example of this disease within the church just five years ago. A group of us had returned from the desert to a nearby town for a worship service. The venue was an old tin shed and many of the Aboriginals in the population nearby 
came to this service to take part. It was a population where violence was rife, where many were on government subsidies, where alcoholism was a huge problem. And to my horror, he wrote, a visiting white preacher took over, even pushing aside the very capable Aboriginal leader who was supposed to be preaching. And just before the offering was collected, he asked an Aboriginal woman to read the Bible passage in which St. Paul talks to Timothy about the love of money. But he had reinterpreted it. The preacher had added his own words between each line from the Bible, which contradicted everything that Paul was saying. And so her reading ended with the outrageous promise that if their offering was generous that day, they would find large amounts of money in their bank accounts on Monday morning. And he said, what a betrayal. What a betrayal. You see, the problem with stories like that, as horrifying as they are, is that it can make us think that it's a problem out there somewhere else. Or that it's just a problem for those who stand up on the stage and teach God's word. Absolutely, James 3.1 tells us that those that teach God's word will be judged more harshly, harshly. And I feel the weight of that, as Mark and Ken do. But we don't want to miss this warning because it's not just for leaders. See, I want to put it to you this way. If you have ever shared anything from the Bible with another person, even your own child, explained one line of the Bible, then this is a message for you. Because we all need to understand God's word correctly and to pass it on faithfully so that we don't lead people astray, that we don't lead them away from the gospel of grace, salvation by faith in Jesus alone. The responsibility to study God's word and to use it rightly is huge. And if we reflect on the previous passage from last week in verses 33 to 36, the issue is that scripture, the light of scripture, can become dark within us because we stop actually believing it and living by it. And the result is we lead ourselves away from salvation and we can turn others from the truth. See, we started with the question tonight, what does Jesus condemn? And we've seen that Jesus condemns hypocrisy in all of its forms, where people look at external things, try and make themselves look right or pure before God over insignificant things that will never fool the God of the nations. He's not impressed by such things. He can see through that instantly. But he is interested in your heart. And though no one else can diagnose where you stand and where your heart is tonight, God can. And it's only his praise and his assessment that should count for you. And Jesus wants to say to us through this passage as he rebukes these lawyers and these Pharisees, don't live like them. Be careful that you don't fall into these traps and if you have, if any of those points tonight have resonated with you, as they did for me as I was thinking about that passage, this passage this week, then the thing to do is to repent. We want to keep short accounts with God. We want to acknowledge where we're being led off into legalisms, into putting value on that which is worthless. We need to preach the gospel again to ourselves, as I said earlier. We need to realise 
that we're desperate sinners in need of a saviour, not pretend that we're otherwise, and to keep coming back to the foot of the cross and realising God's mercy to us in the sending of his son. Will you join me in praying? Let's pray to that end. Our Heavenly Father, we want to acknowledge that our hearts can be prone to wander. And Lord, we ask that you might be at work in us, helping us to see and to hear rightly these stinging rebukes from Jesus. May we not respond to you in such a way. Lord, help us to be those who do love you with all our hearts and who love our neighbour as ourselves, who realise that there is no salvation except that which you give us through your undeserved grace. Lord, we know that we need your help to continue to be motivated and to live rightly. And so we ask that you might enable us, help us by your Holy Spirit. We ask that, that you would help us this week, that you would lead us in a way that helps us to honour you, not simply what we do, but also how we think, that we might rightly serve you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.